Good morning. I am Mike Overstreet. I am the teaching pastor here at E3, and we're just really this week. Um, we're going to start out today, actually, with me sharing with you one of my greatest passions. And that is, my wife and I are avid hikers. Hiking is just a central part of our lives. In fact, one of our marriage goals is that we are going to filter pretty much every vacation we do through going to all of the national parks in this country. We just love it. It's the adventure, it's the thrill, it's the outdoors. And two summers ago, we were able to go on one of these bucket list trips. Basically, my wife and I set out to Montana, and we went over two weeks through Glacier National Park, Yellowstone National Park, and Grand Teton National Park. It was one of the single greatest experiences of my life. But for today, I actually want to share a story about one hike from that trip, namely, Ricky and I's first hike from hell together. So, <laughs> it's a story about this hike we went on in Glacier National Park that went off the rails immediately. And then it went on to just get worse and worse and worse and worse, and they were like, it can't get any worse, and then it got worse. I mean, it just blew up our expectations, and it tested us in pretty much every way. It's one of those moments that we laugh about now, but at the time, you're just like, I don't understand how an experience could be this bad. <laughs> so I want to set the scene. It was our last day at Glacier National Park. We had done all the hikes we wanted to do, and we had just enough daylight left for one more. So Ricky and I did what we always do. We went to a ranger station, and we asked one of the rangers for a recommendation. We said, we want to hike it that's not too hard, where we might be able to see wildlife, and hopefully there's some beautiful views along the way. And the ranger was like, I got just what you're looking for. And he seemed like a perfectly nice, honest, trustworthy man. I was like, this guy knows what he's talking about. And he points us to this hike called Mount Brown. Now, the first red flag is that we weren't looking to do a mountain hike, because we had already hiked pretty much 20 miles over the last couple days. So our legs are kind of shot. But he assured us, don't worry. There are some spots that are a little tough, but overall, it's a great hike, it's not too hard, and the payoff is worthwhile. So despite my hesitations, I said, let's go for it. We trust this guy. And for the first time in my life, I knew regret. <laughs> you see, immediately, this hike starts going straight up. And we were like, well, he did say some of it was hard. Wrong. The whole point of the hike, apparently, is switchbacks. If you don't know what a switchback is, that's when a mountain cuts, or a trail on a mountain cuts back and forth, left and right, to try to make the grade of the hike easier. But on this switchback, it was just straight up. I could basically tell that it was the exact same grade as the rest of the mountain. We're just going back and forth and back and forth and back and forth and up and up and up. And it is the steepest switchback I have ever walked. And we're just like, well, surely, surely, the views will be worthwhile. Well, we get up there, and we find this. Pretty much the entire trail had been burned by a wildfire. So everywhere around us is dead, charred trees. <laughs> and it is just the ugliest place I have ever been for miles. <laughs> And I'm like, well, hey, it can't get any worse. And joke's on me, because that's when the mosquitoes came. And I'm not talking about a few of them. I'm talking about a swarm, a plague sent by God upon our house. And we are just like, could it get any worse? 
Why, yes, it can. About halfway up, we run into a couple hikers coming down, and we, we ask them two questions. We're like, how much further is it, and does it get easier than this? And guess what? They laughed. That was their response. They just laughed in our face, which is not a good sign. And we were just convinced at this point that it was hopeless. But that brings us to our next challenge, because that's when the beast showed up. And I'm joking, but we run into a bunch of mountain goats. Now, I'll be honest, this was something I was really excited about. I wanted to see mountain goats. It's one of the reasons we picked the hike. However, that view of how majestic they were slowly faded when we realized that these goats wanted something from us. You see, they followed within a couple yards for miles. And it started to sink in that someone had fed these goats before, and that these goats expected us to do the same. In fact, it became abundantly clear when one of the goats rushed at us to attack another goat that had gotten too close. <laughs> I have never heard my wife scream so loud, and it may seem like a cool experience to watch goats fight, but let me tell you something. When you're in the middle of nowhere and animals start fighting over who gets to come at you, it's not that fun. <laughs> and then we were like, oh, well, we'll just get by them. Wrong? Let me show you this one. <laughs> They just sit down on the path. It's like Gandalf, like, thou shalt not pass. Like, <laughs> and we, we just don't know what comes next. But God had something great in store for us because the answer was snow. So, and I'm not talking just a little bit of snow. I am talking feet of snow. So now we're going up this straight up hike and every five feet... <laughs> One of us falls to our hip in frozen ice water that is now full, of, our shoes are just full of it. And I'm not kidding. We are hopeless. Our legs are burned out. We are exhausted. Everything around us looks dead. And the goats are a little suspect. And just when we are about to give up, we pass through a tree line. And we come out to a view that left me speechless. I just want to show you a couple pictures. They don't really capture it because it's almost impossible to capture. You see, what I found was that Mount Brown was one of the high points of this part of Glacier. And from that top, we could look down and see everywhere we had hiked before that point. I mean, it was just a sprawling array of glacier lakes, of mountaintops, of majesty. And I was just speechless. I think we have another one. I mean, it's unreal. Like I said, my phone can't even capture what it was like to come into that space. And my wife and I, we were just left that all we could do was sit down and just be in awe of it. I mean, just to sit there and enjoy it and quite frankly, to be grateful for the journey. And I'm going to be honest. One of the best parts about being a pastor is that during some experiences of your life, like right in the middle of them, you go, man, this is going to be a great sermon illustration one day. I mean, this was just one of those experiences that almost immediately spoke to me in that spiritual, deep way. You see, it just captured, I think, a truth about the spiritual life. Specifically, that the journey into change and growth always takes us into the unknown, into somewhere we've never been before, into things we've never done before, into pains we've never felt before, turning us into someone we've never been before.
And just like on that hike, I think we set out and we begin to grow and we're full of trust. But then we quickly discovered that we are surrounded by new and uncertain territory. And those doubts start to kick in. Maybe this isn't the journey I want to be on. In fact, I think that we inevitably come to a crossroad. Do I keep going and trust that the destination is worthwhile? Trust the path I am on is leading me somewhere beautiful I've never been before? Or do we turn back? It's not worth it. Don't go this way anymore. And it's this crossroad that is captured in our next step of the journey in our series, God Part One. We've been looking through the Exodus story, trying to figure out who this God is by looking at what he does. And this week, we're going to look at the God of the crossroad. We're going to look at what, who this God is by looking at how he leads us when it comes to the uncertain places of growth and change and transformation. And we're going to look at it actually through what seems at first glance to be an entirely insignificant story in the Exodus. It comes right after where we let off or left off last week. We read last week that God defeated Pharaoh. He freed his people from slavery in Egypt, leading them towards the promised land, which was this promised territory that God told his people would one day be their home. And what follows is a powerful scene. God comes to his people on the night of their liberation, and he says, go to bed ready. I want you to have your cloaks tucked in, your sandals on, your staff in hand, because after tonight, it is go time. We are getting out of Egypt, and we're going to where I promised you we would go. And God, as he often does in the Bible, always does in the Bible, comes through. He liberates them, and they leave that land. And almost immediately, a new reality sinks in. This is unknown territory. Bondage in the land of Egypt was all the Israelites had ever known. And they just walked away from that, heading towards a vague future promise of somewhere that they hope to come to someday. And they are left with some questions about who this God is and what does it mean to follow him into new uncharted territory. Questions that define the crossroad at the heart of our story today. So we are going to dive in. We're going to pick up where we left off. We're going to start in Exodus chapter 13. Starting in verse 17, we read, When the Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them on the road through the Philistine country, though that was shorter. For God said if they face war, they might change their minds and return to Egypt. So God led the people around by the desert road towards the Red Sea. The Israelites went up out of Egypt ready for battle. Now I want to start our exploration of this small story with a question. At this point in the story, have the Israelites done anything to earn their liberation or to be led by God? Have they met any standards, criteria, a list of demands that God puts before them? No. See, this is actually really interesting. Because later in the Exodus, we're going to read about how God gives his people the law, the Ten Commandments, his instructions for how they should live in the world. But that is chapters from now, which means that at this point, we are finding a way that God operates that is actually a little alien to how we even think he operates. I just want to show you on a slide. See, what this story shows me is that the way God changes people 
is he starts with liberation. Then he leads. And then he shows them growth and change. And let's be honest, as the church, this is kind of opposite of how we usually think about God, isn't it? We usually tell ourselves that God leads and liberates people after they get their life together. That God liberates and leads people when they get all their theology right. When they get all of that ucky, nasty brokenness sorted out so they can be perfect, good Christians. And yet, according to the Exodus, according to this story, it's the exact opposite way that God deals with his people. God leads his people after the liberation. And only after that does he expect growth, change, or transformation from them. This is how the God of the Exodus moves, liberates, then leads, then changes. And from there, I think the story gets really interesting to me. You see, we read that God leads his people out of Egypt on this longer road than this shorter, more direct route. Now let's try to get into the minds of the Israelites. They are a people who have just been freed from slavery under the greatest military empire in the known world. If you were in their position, what route would you expect and want to take to get on out of Egypt and to go to the promised land? The shortest, the most direct. That's what I would assume. But God does not do that. To really understand how unexpected this is, I want to show you a map. So Egypt is this top left corner right here. That's where they start. And the promised land is actually in the top right corner. So if you were a rational person, how would you get there? You cut over this little pass right here. It's actually pretty simple. It's like right to the right. And then on up you go, and we're there. <laughs> Which way does God lead them? The exact opposite direction. <laughs> the exact opposite direction. Not only that, but it is a path that goes through the desert towards the Red Sea. And already we need to spend a little bit of time on these two geographical points. I want to start by talking about the desert. You see, in the ancient world, the desert was a powerfully symbolic place. In the ancient world, the desert was true wilderness. They did not have AC, cars, water systems, so the desert was truly unknown and dangerous. You did not go into it unless you knew exactly where you were going, unless you had a plan, unless you knew where the next water was, unless you knew the path out of it. Because if you got lost in the desert, that meant death. So when you read the Bible, the desert or the wilderness acts as a powerfully, powerfully symbolic place. It becomes associated with the very space of trial, testing, and hardship. When you read that someone goes into it, you know that they're coming in to the challenge of their life. And this is where God leads his people after the moment of liberation. And on top of that, we are told that on the other side of that desert is the Red Sea, an ocean of water. Now, if you are a freed slave who just left Egypt, do you think you can cross an ocean of water? Do you have the resources, the gifts, to move an entire people across an ocean? No. It's, it's, it's completely mind-boggling. 
I mean, let's again, let's again get in the minds of the Israelites. You're finally free. But you don't know if the Pharaoh is chasing you or not. Evil empires don't usually like letting go of free labor. You also don't know where the final destination is. You don't know how you're going to get there. And then you discover that you're being led on a longer route through the very symbol of trial and testing in your worldview. Oh, and by the way, on the other side of it is the dead end of all dead ends. How do you think you're doing in that moment? Do you, any of us think that we might be questioning whether this God has any idea what he's doing? At the very least, you would think his GPS is busted. Like you tap him on the shoulder, you're like recalculating. Come on, we have to, this isn't the right way. I mean, this is a moment of tension, real tension in the Bible. God is leading them in a direction totally outside of their expectations. In fact, God is leading them in a space that seems dangerous and unknown, that we as readers, we know that he's doing this for their own good, that if they went the way that they wanted to go, that they would run into conflict and it would make them turn back to Egypt. But from their perspective, this is the very place of death and danger and hardship. That's where this God is leading them. Now, we, as rational people, would expect that God is going to come down, give them like a brave heart speech to alleviate their concerns. This is exactly where we're going. This is exactly how we're going to get there. And this is exactly why we are taking this route. But that does not happen. We read, Moses took the bones of Joseph with him because Joseph had made the Israelites swear an oath. He had said, God will surely come to your aid and then you must carry my bones up with you from this place. After leading Succoth, they camped in Etham on the edge of the desert. By day, the Lord went ahead of them in a pillar of cloud to guide them on their way and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light so that they could travel by day or night. Neither the pillar of cloud by day nor the pillar of fire by night left its place in front of the people. So rather than a list of details and assurances, God gives them two things. A bunch of bones, which is like gross, and this pillar of cloud and fire in front of them. And I just want to spend a couple seconds, some time unpacking this and sitting with it. The first, this guy Joseph's bones. Now, if you're new to the biblical story, Joseph is a leader and an ancestor from the beginning of the Israelite story. He's actually why they ended up in Egypt in the first place. You see, Joseph was this, this man who got sold into slavery in Egypt. But ultimately, he trusts God, and God delivers him on the other side into a new life of blessing in the land. Think about this. This is a fascinating response. Instead of a list of assurances, God gives them a memory. God gives them a symbol that acts as a reminder of their own story. Basically, God says, remember where you've come from. Remember your own story, because if you remember your story, you are going to find a God defined by trust, deliverance, and blessing on the other side of bondage and suffering. Remember where you've come from. And the second thing we read is that God appears before them by day and night as a cloud and a pillar of fire. And we, we probably think of this as reassuring. But again, 
Let's get in the mind of the Israelites. Does this give them in any way a beacon towards their final destination? Does it shine a spotlight in the distance that says, this is where you're going? No, it is right in front of them. Merely the next step forward. That's all they get. I would argue that this is not a reassuring thing. It doesn't even point them to the next place of water, shelter, food, rest. It just shows them the very next step forward. And that's all they have to rely on. I mean, think about these two stories. Just think about them. What does this teach us about God? I think it teaches us some pretty profound things. I think it reminds us that God leads us with our memories, where we've been, our stories, and with his presence. God could have given them the full journey, and yet he chooses to lead them by saying, I will lead you to the promised land. Just find me in where you've been and look for me right where you're at. Because if you find me in those two things, you're going to be able to trust that I'm going to take you to where you need to be. This is a God that leads us through our stories, past, present, and future, and with his presence. And I think that this teaches me a lot about how God leads, but I also think it teaches me a lot about myself as someone who wants to follow this God, especially in the hardship that we as human beings face when we're led into the unknown of change, growth, and transformation. You see, I, I identify with the Israelites, especially in how they almost turned back to Egypt. You see, if you read the whole Exodus story, you're going to find it repeated over and over again. The Israelites are tested in the wilderness, and each time they long to return to Egypt, the place of slavery the place of bondage. And we're kind of dumbfounded when we read stories like that. We're like, how, under any circumstances, could freed slaves want to return to slavery? But I think if we are honest, this story captures a part of us, a truth of us as human beings that just hits home. I think it reminds me that being led by God out of Egypt, out of bondage, is much harder than we often want to think. I think we have moments in our journey when we get a taste of God's liberation. We get that moment of clarity. We get that moment of peace. We get a subtle or profound reminder that there is a possibility for something different. There is something new available that we could change into something better. A moment where we experience what a healthy relationship is after years of toxic ones. A moment when we realize that we can have freedom from those broken emotional cycles of anger, fear, control, if we would just work to let them go. A moment when we realize that the life of forgiveness is far more freeing than a life of resentment that we've always led. The moment when we realize and we taste recovery in the midst of an addiction that has just ravaged our life. And I think we come to these moments, these moments of liberation, and we're just ready to go straight to the promised land. New year, new me, let's go. But then what happens? Life happens. Life smacks us in the face. Life comes around, same old struggles, even new struggles created by the fact that we've changed, and it punches us in the mouth. 
And then we realize that the taste of liberation didn't just magically fix us. In fact, all it really did was rip from me the same old coping mechanisms I have used to deal with the pain of my life for as long as I've known. And what I would say is suddenly, in that moment, the path forward looks like it's going straight into the desert. It looks like we're being led straight into the place of trial, testing, hardship. And in those moments, let's be honest, we relate deeply with the Israelites, don't we? We sit there and we begin to misremember where we've come from. We begin to forget what Egypt was truly like. I think we begin to think that maybe this liberation thing isn't for us after all because it's led me to a place like this. See, I think I find myself in there turning back. I think in the face of loneliness, in that first night where I stop using people, whew, I want to go back to Egypt. I think in the face of the fear that comes when we don't have that powerful feeling of anger, resentment, power, control, in the uncertainty of our lives, whew, I want to go back to Egypt. I think the first time I have to deal with a conflict without judging the person and resenting the person and feeling superior to the person, I want to go back to Egypt. And I know that the first night when I feel pain and I just want so badly to numb myself with that bottle, that substance, that emotional pattern, and I don't, I want to go back to Egypt. I mean, I just think this reminds me that in the face of the unknown of change, growth, newness, the trials in the desert, the apparent dead end of the Red Sea, the fears of the unknown, I find it so easy to look back to my old, comfortable bondage. I find myself longing to return to Egypt because at least there I knew who I was and I knew how to make myself feel better. I think that this part of the Exodus story just speaks to me. I think it just speaks to me about my own experiences when it comes to change and growth, when God leads me into freedom and healing and newness. It teaches me so much about who this God is and how he leads us out of Egypt to the promised land of new life. I just get some powerful truths from this. I just want to walk through to close our time. I think the first thing it teaches me is that for God, the liberation and the leading is given, not earned. God is meeting us right where we are at, working to liberate and lead us while we are still in Egypt. He's not waiting for us to figure out how to get out of there. He is meeting us in that space before any list of demands of us. The starting point is the liberation and the leading. It's not the finish line. And it's given by love and grace. All we need to do to start on the journey is admit that we are even in Egypt, that we are in bondage, that we need something new. And God says in that moment of confession, he is right there, ready to liberate you and lead you to new life. Second, it teaches me that though God liberates in an event 
Real spiritual growth takes place in our willingness to move and to be led in the small steps and singular moments of our life. The only response Israel needed was to be ready to go when God came knocking. Cloaks tucked in, sandals on, staff in hand, ready to journey into the unknown when it was offered to them. And I think for many of us, we want to believe that spirituality is a finish line, that it's a magic bullet, that we experience the liberation and then we're done. We checked off all the right boxes, we got our theology in check, we stopped being such schmucks, and we just, we finished it. We can just wait till we die. I think most of us want to think of spirituality as just a couple of things we got to check off so we can get teleported from straight out of Egypt to the promised land. But that is not the story of the Exodus. This story shows me that God leads not through teleporting us to the end, but by giving us the next step forward. This story tells me that God's leading is about small steps of trust. It's far less an event, and it's the growth that we find when we experience new habits, new practices, new life, defined by the changing of our daily steps. I think this story reminds me that the spiritual life is far less an event and far more learning to trust his leading one day at a time, one moment at a time, one step at a time. It reminds me that just like on my hike, I only get to the mountaintop when I'm willing to start out and trust the path that I've been given. Because quite frankly, along the way, it feels like I'm going the exact wrong way. And yet, in the trusting of that path, I made it to the top. Third, I think this story speaks to me about the various ways that God leads us. I think I would point out that it tells us that God leads us through people, through our communities. I think the exodus, we always have to remember this because we lose this in church. The exodus is not about the liberation of an individual. The, liber the exodus is about the liberation and the leading of a people. God works through a people. In other words, God knows God knows that you cannot make it through the desert alone. We journey through the desert. We get to the promised land together. We need each other. It's an impossible journey to make it on our own. And God's story doesn't show us that. I know I never would have reached the top of that mountain without my wife right next to me, encouraging me, pushing me on, lying to my face. We're almost there, honey. <laughs> Keeping me on the path, because I promise you we wanted to turn back so often, and we probably would if we had been doing it by ourselves. But we got to the promised land together. It also tells me that God leads us through our stories. You see, God tells us to remember. He tells us that we cannot leave Egypt behind without remembering where we've been and why we left in the first place. God knows that we so easily forget, don't we? We just forget. So what does he do? He tells us to go onward by remembering and sharing our stories, not just the good ones, the ones that are ugly, the ones that left scars, the ones that made us let go of that bondage in the first place. We share our stories, where we've been, why we left, how God led us to something new, because it keeps us on the path. God leads us through 
our stories. I know that I'm going to climb that next mountain a lot easier because I can look back and remember the pain that I experienced, how badly I wanted to turn back, and the fact that I didn't, and where that perseverance led me, that I reached the mountaintop on the other side. We have to share our stories. And it tells me that God leads us through his presence. You see, God doesn't just give his people a map and says, good luck, X marks the spot. He goes on the journey with them. He is present right there in each step, one space ahead of where they're already at. This God doesn't point to a destination and watch from a distance. He is present in every step along the way. I mean, doesn't that help you trust the payoff at the end if you know that God is there with you in that desert? Doesn't it help you trust that you're going somewhere when you can find him in those moments? And finally, this story story speaks to me about the challenges I need to expect along the way. That the walk towards the promised land always leads us through the desert places first. You see, life change and growth always feels terrifying and unknown when we set out. It takes us into territory totally outside of where we've always been, how we've always behaved, who we've always been. And we set out and we start walking and it feels like we're being led in the exact opposite way that every life experience we've ever had tells us to go in, doesn't it? It leads us into the place that our past, the things that we've fed our whole life, tell us is the exact place of trial, hardship, and testing. It shouts at us, turn back, there's danger here. The place of fear that comes with that first night that you are alone. The place of trial that comes with that first struggle to deal with those coworkers without that anger. The first struggle that we experience when we don't numb our fears with the familiar coping patterns. And in those moments, it feels like we are in the most dangerous wilderness there is, rushing towards a dead end, surrounded by beasts. And we just want to turn back. But this God tells us to press onward, to trust him as he leads us through it, not around it, because he knows that passing through the desert is necessary for going to where we want to go and for becoming who we are called to be. You see, I think this God just knows a simple truth that I often can't accept, that we can't reach the beauty of the mountaintop without the struggle and the pain of climbing the mountain. I have found that the path I often want to take to change, the one that goes around those desert places, is the very path that takes me right back to Egypt. I have found that I need the desert because it is the place, the exact place I wanted to avoid. And yet, if I trust God as he leads me into that space that I have come to fear, what I tend to find is that the things that I have relied on my whole life start getting stripped away. And I start to learn the trust of something better. And I come out of those desert spaces on the other side as someone new, someone who can be led, someone who experiences new life.
I find that the desert place that I wanted to avoid, that I wanted to go around, becomes the very space where God shapes me into who I was called to be. One step further at a time. I think this makes the desert a gift, even though I've never wanted to go into it in the first place. You see, this is a God that I can follow. I mean, this story tells me who this God is. This is a God that tells me that each step I take through that desert is one more step closer to the promised land and one more step farther away from my bondage in Egypt. This God tells me that he is worthy of trust because he is present with us, for us, guiding us along every step of the journey. This story tells me this is a God that is worth following quite simply because he knows the way to the promised land better than I do. If I could have gotten there on my own, wouldn't I have done that already? This God knows the way that I don't because he is a God that works to create newness from what my current perspective thinks are nothing but trials and dead ends. This God leads me to freedom if I would just be willing to meet him in the singular steps and moments of my life into the unknown. If I trust that I find on the other side, I find something new. And that is good news. See, all I have to decide to do is to go, to be ready. Shirt tucked in, sandals on, staff in hand, willing to be led up the mountain, out of Egypt, into the unknown, towards the promised land of new life by a God of the Exodus. And that is a journey worth going on. Amen? Amen. Let's pray.